do what's right for you. And I guarantee that the doctor, if you weren't getting along with the doctor, that doctor doesn't want you in their practice. From the doctor's point of view, you know, doctors get frustrated that the label becomes non-compliance. We don't want non-compliant patients. We want you to do what we say. You know, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but yeah. if there isn't a good therapeutic relationship, it's better for both parties to move on. Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome. Understandably, one of the biggest questions any woman would have is about health insurance, whether she's going through the divorce process or after. It's confusing to take the maze of health insurance options and find what's right for you. In this podcast, you're going to become an expert with the help of two special guests. The first is Gerda Maisel, who is known as Dr. Gerda, the medical Sherpa. She is a patient advocate. And her background is that she's both a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician. She's a board-certified patient advocate and the founder of MyMD Advisor. And Dr. Gerda helps individuals like you navigate the very complex healthcare maze out there to make sure that you're getting the care you need. And Amber Flamingan is right up there with one of the most insightful people you could ever meet. She takes unbelievably complex situations and really breaks them down into simple steps. And she does just that to help you find the right health insurance. Do you stay on COBRA for the 18 months that you're available to do so? Should you go to the healthcare exchange? Do you qualify? Or should you try to get private coverage that has better benefits, but a higher price tag? These two amazing women help you understand all of these different pieces. And make sure that you stay to the end because if you yourself have had a healthcare condition or a child that has mental health needs, neurological needs, or medical needs, you need to understand how to go and get the best coverage for their unique situations. And Dr. Gerda also talks about keeping yourself and your loved ones safe, especially if you have a hospital stay. She shares very scary statistics about the number of medical errors that occur each year and how you can protect against that. And at the end, Amber gives us even more tips of how to better afford medical care using fantastic products and savings tools called as health savings accounts and flexible spending accounts and how you can get access to them. So without further ado, please help me welcome to phenomenally intelligent, bright, and kind women, both Dr. Gerda Maisel, as well as Amber Flanagan. I'm so excited to have our special guests here today, Amber Flanagan and Gerda Maisel, and wanted to find out from the two of you, how did you get into this field? And Amber, can you just jump on in? You know, this field kind of found me. I started off as a financial advisor and ended up starting to work more on the health insurance side. Everyone always had that question. Health insurance is a pain point 
that everyone wants to talk about. And so as my practice evolved, I started integrating it more. And now it's probably 75% of what I do. That is amazing. And it's very important because I know every single one of the women listening today, their ears just perked up because going through divorce, one of the biggest issues is health insurance. And how can I make sure that I have the right health insurance, that my children have the right health insurance, and just as important that I can afford it. And it can be very confusing. Always the questions. And there is a lot of confusion because the terms aren't ones that we use every day. They're not ones that the general public uses. I use them every day. So being Mm -hmm. able to help them navigate and just understanding part of that ended up being a lot of the sessions that we went through. And just like you do on the retirement side or any other insurance, it takes a little bit of education. I found myself spending quite a bit of time educating so that they could read a plan document. They could read what's at work. They could read what's in the divorce decree and understand what that actually meant for them. And I'd love to hear from you, Gerda, because you come from a health background as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into your field, a little bit about what you do and I have a ton of questions as well, a ton of follow-up questions. Sure. So thank you for having me today. So by background, I'm a physician with a specialty in a small field that many people haven't heard of called physical medicine and rehabilitation. And I picked the field because it's all about function and how people do and how they recover from illnesses and injury in the context of their lives. I always liked the idea of seeing the whole person and their family rather than just the person is a disease. A lot of times medicine just sees a person's illnesses and says, here, take this pill. And then I got pulled into administration early and often and spent about the last 10 years at the C-suite level, meaning I was chief medical officer, chief transformation officer, medical group president, blah, blah. And during that time, a lot of complaints would come up to me, whether they were quality complaints or somebody got sued. And when you looked at those issues, underneath a lot of that was a breakdown in communication or a breakdown in trust. And I knew from my own clinical and personal experience how hard it is for so many people to get through the healthcare system, especially when they have complicated conditions or their loved one has a complicated condition. So about two years ago during the pandemic, I decided to leave the corporate world and I founded MyMD Advisor. And I now work full-time as a patient advocate, and I help people get the best possible outcomes, often for their loved ones, but sometimes for themselves, from our complicated healthcare system. And a patient advocate, is that someone that anyone can work with? It's not a profession that I feel like rolls off the tip of our tongue, like a dentist or a primary doctor. How would someone either going through divorce or after a divorce work with you to help navigate that medical system that we all know is, at least for me, I find extremely overwhelming and complicated. It it is. And you should think about, you're a smart person. And if it's overwhelming (laughs) for you, (laughs) it's particularly overwhelming for people that aren't American born. It's Mm -hmm. also overwhelming, particularly for people that may be traditionally disregarded a bit by the healthcare system, whether it be women, people of color, anybody who's even a little bit different, the healthcare system can be particularly hard. And even if you're a white male, 
the healthcare system is not always paying attention and coordinating care. Because what I do is so complicated, I don't advertise. It's really word of mouth. And I'm yeah. always happy to have a conversation with someone because sometimes people just need to be pointed in a direction. I'm not going to charge somebody for that. Just like I'm sure Amber doesn't if it's a straightforward question or, or you don't, Stacey. You know, as a professional, I want to fundamentally be helpful. So I'm always happy when people just give me a call and we talk through what's going on. I'll just relay that I've had several conversations with clients of ours who have children with significant needs, medical, mental health needs. And many times her career is stunted because of that, because she has taken on that role of navigating this medical care. And now she's at a point where she is getting divorced and now in a situation where she really needs to ramp her career back up, but doesn't have enough hours in the day to actually navigate the healthcare system to be able to advocate for herself or for her child. So that's someone that could work with you to help essentially ease that burden to make sure that they're getting the care they need. Oh, absolutely. And my own personal experience, I had both a brother who was born with congenital rubella that my mother struggled. I think it's part of how I ended up in this field because I saw this as a child and I saw her deal with the difficulties of the healthcare system. And frankly, back in the 60s, yes, I'm not old, but back in the 60s, they blamed my mother for my brother's lack of cognitive development. It was very common back then to assume bad mothering was behind developmental delays. And then I also happened to have a son who had some special needs, ended up going to a special school. And so I have some personal experience managing some of those issues personally as well. So Amber, I'd love to hear from you because part of navigating the healthcare system is getting the right insurance. And if she's been on her spouse's insurance, what are her options? Can you talk a little bit about what COBRA is, Mm -hmm. duration, cost, and then what things might look like through the exchange or other options? Sure. So what options are there? You know, COBRA is always an option, especially in the divorce. Typically, they're able to stay on COBRA. 18 months is as long as you're allowed to stay on, unless there are certain circumstances, but 18 months is usually the rule of thumb there. And that cost is going to be the cost of the plan. They're allowed to increase it slightly, three or 4%, but not anything more than that. But it won't be subsidized by the employer. So if the employer had been paying 70% or had been paying 50%, now the entire cost of the premium is going to be on that person on COBRA. And that there are absolutely ways that are the employer, especially during separation, will say, I'll pay for 18 months or I'll pay for a year, but that's not typically the case in divorce. So that premium is going to be the cost of what's out there. Now, that being said, that's the premium going that's out there right now, right? Like it's not extra inflated. It's not anything like that. If we go on the exchange, the exchange is going to be a much more limited network. It just always is. But the price is going to be based on your income. So if she doesn't have income, It will be heavily subsidized through New York State or whatever state it might be. It's actually a state-ran program, not a federal program. So it will be state-dependent. 
And that could help. Absolutely. But when you start talking about those special needs, and I often talk to clients about you have the doctors you want and you have the doctors you need. I like my PCP. She's nice. I would like to keep her if I can. Mm -hmm. My OBGYN saved my life twice. I need her. There's a difference. So making sure that those doctors that you need are in network is imperative. That's some of the biggest homework that you can do. And if they don't take the network that you are going into, ask them what they do so that we can kind of work backwards and find a plan that they are in network in. Mental health, unfortunately, doesn't have a very big network. And if they have a network, there's a waiting list. And it's part of the unfortunate side of things. But if that mental health care is needed, we absolutely need to go out and look to make sure that there's an out-of-network option on your plan. There's a PPO plan. Can you talk about what that means? So absolutely. Can you just do the basic like in network and what that means and then out of network? And does Mm -hmm. that mean out of network that you have no coverage and you're on your own or is there an option in certain plans? So if you have in network only, I'm going to use United Healthcare Oxford's choice plan. If your doctor takes the choice network, then all of the plan benefits that are listed are applicable to that doctor and typically where that doctor also has hospital rights so that you know that anytime that you go in, your copay is going to be 45 bucks, your deductible is $3,000, things like that. That's what you know. If there is no out-of-network coverage, then you are not covered if they're not in the choice plan. End of story, doesn't count towards anything. If there is out-of-network coverage, it's going to be bigger, right? You're going to have to pay in more. Instead of $3,000, you might have to pay $5,000 or $6,000. But there will be a point where the insurance kicks in and starts to subsidize some of those payments, and there will be an out-of-pocket maximum. Out-of-pocket maximum is one of the things that I have clients look at closely every single time, because that's what an insurance world is called your stop loss insurance comes in that point. After $16,000 out of pocket, you will have no more co-pays. You will have no co-insurance. Everything else 100% covered. Over at that point. So, you know, I think of it as like an emergency fund, but for your medical, (laughs) yeah. and I can see that being really important, especially if there are significant medical needs, right? The mental health one is imperative. I'm working with a client right now. She spends $5,000 a month on mental health. So we went out and found her another plan because she wasn't covered any out of network. So all of this was coming straight out of her pocket. So for a minimal increase in her premium, we were able to add out of network options to her current plan. And she's still going to have to pay $16,000 before she stops paying, but that's four months of medical care. And and that's better than the 60,000. Exactly. That she would have to pay if she got no coverage, right? Exactly. At $5,000 a month. So Amber, how does one do that? Can you find coverage that is out of network through the exchange? No. No. So of course, then staying on COBRA. Yep. If the exchange doesn't offer that, then... Typically, you go to the independent network on the individual level is what you typically do. Now, if she might own a business... If she might be able to partner in a business, there are definitely more unique 
strategies we can use at that point to consider her a group. On the individual side, that unfortunately is fairly limited, but there are options. We can always find an option if we have to go direct to carrier. So we go directly to United Healthcare. What are your individual plans? Things like that. We can do that to be able to find them. So you can do that. We just know that we're probably going to pay a bigger price tag. Yes. Yeah. And if a child has significant medical needs, it may make sense if they've been covered on the ex-spouse's health insurance that they continue. Absolutely. And that way she's only responsible for herself. Exactly. Now, there is no more worry of pre-existing conditions. So you don't have to worry about that. That has gone away. That is one of the things that Affordable Care Act did was that there are no more, if you have a gap in coverage or this, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that is gone. But yes, if there are practitioners that you need and a network that you need and it's working, the staying on the ex-spouses could be a viable solution. Yeah. Gerda, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much, Amber. How do you make sure you're getting the best care? Everybody knows, like pick good doctors, right? Which, I mean, I feel like we can do an entire podcast on how do you find a good doctor, but what are some of the other things that you should be thinking about when you're navigating healthcare for either you or your children? Well, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, remember that you can always change doctors. I know you know that, but sometimes people feel obligated to stick around. and. Even within the same practice, people change doctors all the time. And I have heard so many people say, oh, I'm not comfortable with my current doctor. One time this nice doctor in the practice was covering and I really liked him or her, but I don't want to switch because I might piss off my current doctor. And the reality is, don't worry about it. People change all the time. People's styles are so different and it's perfectly fine to change even within the same practice. Can I tell you, Gerda, I'm just going to be 100% authentic. We changed our dog's vet and it took me a year to get up the courage. And it's only because that doctor did something that made me feel so uncomfortable and was recommending a very big surgery for my pet that didn't really need it. And I went out, got a second opinion, and they said, this is not necessary. This is a bump. It's cosmetic. And if you're okay with the bump, I'm sure Matilda's okay with the bump. But I will tell you, I still get emails from the old one saying vaccination due. Well, they're not due. They're at the new vet and I feel so happy. But I will tell you, there's an emotional piece about mm-hmm. leaving a doctor and getting a new doctor. So thank you, Gerda, for saying, guess what? <laughs> do it. Okay. It's okay. Do what's right for you, right? Do what's right for you. And I guarantee that the doctor, if you weren't getting along with the doctor, that doctor doesn't want you in their practice. From the doctor's point of view, you know, doctors get frustrated that the label becomes non-compliance. We don't want non-compliant patients. We want you to do what we say. You know, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but yeah. if there isn't a good therapeutic relationship, it's better for both parties to move on. So think you can also ask, you know, what can you do? So one of the things, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you a couple of tips, but I also want to give you a little context, which is especially in, well, in most settings, but in offices in particular, doctors make money on what we call the churn, meaning they're churning patients all day long. Yeah. And doctors are now essentially peace workers, meaning they get paid per piece. They get paid per patient. Person. And so... 
that's part of what contributes to the sense that doctors don't have enough time. Doctors are highly incented financially to spend as little time as possible taking care of you, to be really blunt about it. Now, of course, most doctors are good, kind, compassionate people, but just know that I could have said it a very different way, but I always like to have people have the context. The doctor's time with you is limited. And so as part of that, you want to be prepared when you walk in the room. And that means sit down, write out your questions ahead of time. If you're working with an advocate or a care manager, then run those questions by them so that you can be really focused. Because what I see frequently is people come in and they're like, well, I don't know. Let's see what the doctor has to say. Well, the doctor will ask you questions, but they need to know and you want to focus on the key things, issues, or outcomes that matter the most to you. So plan those questions ahead of time. So that's a common piece of advice. But the other piece of advice that I don't hear so often is answer the doctor's questions carefully. Don't go on and on and on. Answer what they ask you because that doctor is going to be looking for specific things and you may not understand the subtext. You know, I can give you a couple examples. One, I had a client who had abdominal infections. He had a couple of abscesses and he went to see his surgeon and she asked him about nausea and vomiting. Now, I know she's looking for signs of infection because that can, when you have an abdominal infection, it can make you, and he started answering about his constipation. She didn't want to know about his constipation. That wasn't what she was after. And I watched her try to correct him twice. And then I watched her completely disengage when he just kept talking about his constipation. I ended up in my role as a medical advocate, intervening, answering her question, including no fevers, no chills, a few other things, and got the interview back on track. So just answer the question and keep your answer to the point. Another thing is don't go alone if you possibly can. Have somebody else with you. And it's been very well documented that if there's anything that has emotional context for you or an emotional reaction, you're not going to absorb it. Yeah. Suddenly you get, again, I'm I'm overstating it, but you kind of get a little stupid in terms of content. It just becomes impossible. When you get hijacked, all you can focus in on is one thing. You don't necessarily absorb all the other subtleties of what the doctor is saying or talking about. So have somebody with you. And then my last piece of advice on that is if it's really complicated, and especially when care coordination needs to be involved, hire a medical advocate, a personal medical advocate like myself, because what we do, when I first started doing this, I thought what I was going to be doing was translating medical information. There's a lot of this subtext to what the doctor is asking that goes over people's heads time and time again. And I could give you more examples if we had more time. But a medical advocate you know, who's a doctor or a nurse is going to help you really understand what those questions mean, what's being said, and where the medical thinking is going. That's so helpful. And I will go back to the never go alone. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer 13 years ago, and I went with her to that appointment where we found out what was going on. And thank God I was there, and I had my notepad, and I was writing down, even I had a hard time remembering, but because I had written everything down, thank goodness. Yeah, definitely having someone there. Amber, I'd love to hear from you. We've talked about 
you know, navigating all the different insurance options out there. We've talked about staying on COBRA, possibly using an exchange, you know, getting a private policy, maybe if you have a business being able to get a group or we have some clients who actually get a full-time paying job and we're choosing that full-time paying job based on how their health benefits mm-hmm. look. Tell me a little bit about health savings accounts when you need them, when you're eligible and why they're so beautiful and amazing. <laughs> they are beautiful and Not amazing. that that's a leading question at all. <laughs> they are, but they get very confused with FSAs. So an HSA. Oh, yes, just the HSA, the FSA, the blah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk all about all of it. All the acronyms. So a health savings account is beautiful because if you have a policy that is approved through the IRS to be able to put money into an HSA, you can at a tax-free rate, $3,600 for an adult, $7,200 for a family. And it goes in just like your IRA. It goes into this account and you use it for all the things. You can use it for a deductible. You can use it for copay. You can use it for medicine. You can use it for braces and not teeth braces, but like foot braces and things like that, durable medical equipment, all those things you can use it for. But if you don't have that need that year, it rolls over to the year that you do need it. And so if you have a couple of great years where nobody ended up in the emergency room and nobody broke their leg and everybody was fine and healthy, you can start to really accumulate some cash inside of these accounts. And what that cash can be used for later is Medicare. It can be used for Medicare premiums. It can be used for long-term care premiums. It can be used for medical costs in retirement. So as you start to be able to accumulate, you're able to actually invest that money so that it can start working for you also. Now, that is a little bit down the road. That is a little bit of planning. But in general, this is not a use it or lose it situation. You don't have to go out and buy Band-Aids and more of them than you'll ever use or that next pair of glasses. You can use it for your medical care going forward and even into retirement. And Amber, not all health insurance plans allow you to put money into a health savings account. So can you tell us a little bit more about which are those plans? So they have to be approved by the IRS. And so the name will indicate HSA. In there somewhere, it will absolutely indicate HSA. If it does not have an HSA to it, it does not. Now, that being said, if your employer has an HSA plan, but they don't set up an HSA so that you can just automatically deduct or put money into it from your paycheck, you can go to a bank. You can go Stacy Francis. You can go to places like that and be able to get an HSA. You don't have to have it through work. It's just if the plan is already approved for it. And these typically plans that allow you to put money in a health savings account are what we consider high deductible plans. Yes. So it's a, a high threshold. And when we say high deductible, is it 5000 that you have to pay out of pocket? Is it 10000 Is it 20000 that you have to pay out of pocket before any dollars come? 1400 for an individual. So typically they're in the metal world, which is where most plans lie, right? You have a bronze, silver, gold plan. Mm-hmm. Typically they're bronze plans because they have to have a deductible before a copay. So you have to hit the deductible before a copay kicks in. Typically, those are only bronze plans. Typically, bronze plans have three, five, ten thousand dollar individual deductibles somewhere in there. 
but by law, it's only $1,400 as a deductible. That's why I don't like to really associate that number is because that number doesn't seem high and a silver or a gold plan could have a deductible that meets that threshold, but they're not IRS compatible. So again, and, questions, we come okay. to you and you yep. help us. <laughs> and it's in the name. That's why yep. like it's in the name. Yep. And that's yep. where if it's not, you can always ask a question to see if maybe they left it off. But if it's in there, you're good to go. And can you tell me a little bit about a flex spending account and what that is? And it typically, you know, through an employer and you're able to use it for those over-the-counter medical expenses. I know that every time I go to Walgreens, CVS and get a prescription, it says at the bottom of my receipt, FSA account, dollar amount that's eligible. Can you talk a little bit about that and how much it is? Is this a use it or lose it each year? And how do I contribute to it? It is. So it is an employer-sponsored plan. You can't go to the bank and get one of these. This is part of an employer plan. Sometimes employers put money into it. You can put money into it. it comes straight out of your paycheck. You can say $100. You can say $200. That number isn't really capped. What is capped is that you have to spend it by December 31st. Whatever you put in that plan has to be spent. So again, you don't spend it for whatever reason then you are buying more Band-Aids than you know about or the prescription set of sunglasses or whatever might qualify. The great part about those is that that is also a tax-free contribution. So you do get that tax benefit by being able to put some money in there, but making sure that it's a reasonable cost for what you're going to be spending every year so that you're not spending on frivolous things is... Yeah, very nice. important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you're putting $3,000 in, you make $100,000 you're only going to be taxed on 97000 that exactly. year, which is really beautiful. Exactly. So I know we are going through a lot of information. Gerda, I'd love to ask you, this is a question that I've asked myself. Some people have heard about concierge doctors. What are your thoughts with that? I don't have an opinion either way, but instead of having a primary care doctor, you pay a certain amount more. And then this is a doctor that typically, you know, instead of a 15 minute visit or half, you know, you would have a 45 minute visit. What are your thoughts about that? It's something that I've seen really spring up much more over these last couple of years. Yeah, concierge medicine can be wonderful. It can really make a difference for people. First of all, as you said, they get more time. Secondly, the doctors are happier because they want to be spending more time. It's a huge source of stress to live through the churn. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. But of course, you have to be able to afford it. Yep. Got it. And if you are a person where you have either yourself or parents or children that have stays in a hospital or rehab, what are some things to think about to make sure that you're getting the best care? Knock on wood, I've been in the hospital very little. A couple trips to the emergency room for whatever reason all turned out just fine. But those that I know who have had significant stays in hospitals, some of them have had some pretty tough experiences with regards to their care. And then even worse, medical bills that are astronomical that they're now solely responsible for. What would be your advice, both 
to how to advocate for yourself or a, a loved one in the hospital, but then how do you pay those bills off? And do you have to pay the dollar amount on that bill or is there a negotiating tactics there? Well, I'll start by focusing a little bit on the realities in today's hospitals. So people assume that medical care in the hospital is going to be fantastic. It's one of the things that I've noticed is that even for people that might work in the outpatient arena, the hospital becomes a kind of a black box. The patient goes in, stuff happens, the patient comes out. Unfortunately, the reality is rather different. While the American healthcare system is excellent overall, there are still, and I was just looking at the statistics, hundreds of thousands of people. The last statistic I read was about 250,000 people a year that die because of medical error. It's not a small number. And there have been a lot of good gains. I'm not suggesting that you know the hospitals are horrible places, but I am speaking to there is a reality, especially now with COVID, the physician burnout rate has gone way up. Nursing burnout rate has gone way up. Nurses are turning over. People are often working short, whether it's nurses, aides, or doctors. So you want to be vigilant when you have a loved one in the hospital, because whether it's an infection that somebody catches in the hospital or a medical error, a lot of things can go wrong when our loved ones are at their most vulnerable. And it's absolutely exhausting. And in my practice now as a patient advocate, I've actually started specializing in people in the hospitals and in rehabs because that's where people are most vulnerable and where they really, really need the help. You mentioned it earlier in the outpatient context, keep a notebook. But beyond that, be present. Whether you're there daily, you work out a family member who's there daily, if you can't be there because your mom is in a different state, then all at least daily and then get to know the people. You know, some people hire aides now. I have seen that more than I've ever seen before, where if they have an aide come in and stay with their vulnerable elder, typically while they're in the hospital. And that's not something that has occurred to most people. And it wasn't really as necessary as it seems to be now. And that aid acts as the eyes and the ears of the family, not to spy on what's going on, but rather to ask questions and take care of some of the subtle things that happen back and forth. I would also say, be kind to the doctors and the staff, the nurses, they are usually very compassionate, decent people, but they're freaking exhausted. And behind the scenes, they may have been working multiple shifts in a row. They may have their own personal stuff going on, and they can't always be 100% emotionally available for you. And so just be kind to them, whether it's thanking them and saying specifically what they did, not just the usual, thank you, doctor, but thank you, that explanation was really helpful. Or thank you for spending that extra time with me or name something specific that they did. And nowadays, especially as the pandemic is improving, you know, you can bring token gifts. Everybody likes food. I'm not saying you have to show up with, you know, a dozen bagels every time, but be kind to the staff. They are doing the best they can, but they are struggling. The other thing is to really be aware of asking the right question to the right person at the right time. So let me, I'll just give you a quick story. 
and what I mean by that. So I had somebody, his wife was in the hospital. She had pneumonia. And he said to me, like, every day she looks the same to me. How do I know if she's getting better? You know, and he just wanted a simple, straightforward way to know whether his wife was getting better. And I said, oh, well, that's pretty easy. Just follow the white count. The white count, which is the measure of WBCs, white blood cells, the doctors will be following that every day and it'll drop. If the antibiotics are working, that white count's going to come down. Now, I was talking to him at eight o'clock at night. His first impulse was, he's like, oh, okay, I'll call in and I'll talk to the doctor now and I'll ask what the white count is. Well, I can tell you, even if somehow he had talked the hospital operator into connecting him with the hospitalist, it would have been a nocturnist covering who would not have been of much use, maybe would have looked it up, but probably wouldn't have even picked up the call from the patient's family. Rather, what I coached him to do is I said, look, you're there in the morning. Doesn't the nurse come in with her little cart and is typing in information? I said, she'll have that in the computer. Just ask her every morning, hey, what's the white count? And then just becomes part of your daily request. And so that's a small example of asking the right person the right question at the right time. Once he started doing that, he would tell me every day, okay, well, her white count is 14. Now it's 12. And he was able to follow her progress objectively in a way that was easy for him and easy for staff. That's wonderful. Um, this is so okay. helpful. A final question. Bills, I, I have a dear friend who has significant medical issues and she's been dealing with hospital stays. And she always, no longer surprised, but in the beginning of, that was a consultation with this doctor and I just got a blank $2,000 bill or this medical procedure was this. And has insurance, but of course, not all of it is covered. Gerda, would you be someone that a person could speak to about bills? If not, are there individuals that can ask, why was that not fully covered? Or why was that only partially covered? Or why was that blah, blah, blah? Yeah. So as a physician, as you can tell, I focus on the medical yeah. care and helping ensure that the person's goals are being met and the best possible interactions and outcomes and experiences with the medical system. When it comes to bills, my piece is if somebody needs a first-line appeal for medical necessity, I certainly can either help them do it or do that. But when it comes to the vast paperwork pile, I know. there is a separate set of people who are much, much more qualified than me to deal with all of those bills that come in, to ask for itemized descriptions, to go through and make sure that what you're being billed for is correct. And then this subgroup of people will also negotiate with hospitals and health systems for a lower total amount. Because a hospital is going to want you to pay something versus just completely throwing up your hands yeah. and not paying yeah, not anything. Paying anything. Yeah. So there are patient advocates specifically. And so when I have a client that has an issue like that, I refer them to people that yep. have that expertise. That's great. Thank you. And I'd jump in right there and say also, like, if it's not the vast problem, if it's the billing got done wrong, things like that, that calling their concierge carrier, like they're calling the carrier, calling United Healthcare, calling Emblem, whoever it might be, and talking to their concierge team and understanding, and this is a key word, what is reasonable and customary as a charge, that's their terminology, what is reasonable and customary, will at least give anyone the idea of this is how much I should be paying for it, and understanding, kind of at least getting that baseline 
uh, yeah. grounds of what billing will look like. And I've done that myself. If someone, something has not been covered or denied, mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit more about this? Oh, you had the wrong billing code. Oh, right. okay, great. I can do that, right? <laughs> I can do that. So Amber, I'd love for everyone to know how they can reach out to you. What is the best way for individuals listening who are interested in understanding their different health insurance options, if they're going through divorce, if they're post-divorce, what is the best way to reach out to you? Emails usually best. Yep. My email is aflanagan at ashconfinancial.com. If that is usually the best way to kind of start the conversation, we can schedule some time. And my phone number was also listed on there. Yes. And for all of you, we'll make sure that we put that in show notes too. And Gerdo, I will make sure that I put in your information as well in show notes. But what is the typical best way to reach out to you? So the best way is similar to Amber. My email is gm, for my name, Gerda Maisel, at mymdadvisor, an advisor spelled with an O, dot com. I also have a website, which is mymdadvisor.com. And if somebody wants to text me, if you call me directly, I'm going to give you my cell phone number. I may or may not be able to answer when you call, but if you text me, we can set up a time. And my cell phone is 845-316-0175. And I frequently talk to people evenings and weekends because people are having healthcare issues. And all they the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And yeah. I really don't mind. I mean, don't call me at 3 a.m. Unless you're an ongoing client yeah. and something really horrible is happening. But so many people work. I had a very full-time job for many years, and I completely understand the need to talk after the kids go to bed, and that's or first thing in the morning, and that's yeah. fine by me. I have to say, this has been one of the most insightful podcasts we had because we've married the ABCs, the ins and outs of health insurance with how to make sure that you get the best care and navigating what I think is one of the most complicated medical systems out there. And you two are quite a power duo. So thank you so much for being here today, Amber. Thank you, Gerda. Um, So appreciative. Thank you. (laughs) It was fun. I'm so glad that you listened in. I know the biggest takeaway that I took as I shared my story about my mother is don't go it alone, especially if you are advocating for yourself. There are so many tools and resources for you so that you can make sure that you're getting the best, most affordable health insurance coverage and the best medical care possible. And if you have questions about those resources related to your finances, feel free to reach out to me. I know that one of the top things that we look at in financial plans are all the different types of coverage, whether it's health insurance, dental, vision, putting money aside and helping a client open up a health savings account, contributing to a flex spending account so that you get those pre-tax dollars to be able to buy things such as, well, even quite frankly, Band-Aids and aspirin and Tylenol. We are here to make sure that you have the information that you need to make smart financial decisions because we know that the Years after a divorce are some of the most precarious, where the decisions you make financially can either make or break your long-term financial future. We want you to be on a financially secure path, and that's what we do here at Francis Financial. We work one-on-one creating a financial roadmap, a financial crystal ball, you could say, out to your age 95, 
and then model into that all of the changes in your life, whether it's buying a house, selling a house, retiring, adding more vacations, affording expensive college education or medical costs for you and your family. And then onto that, we map the ideal portfolio that's going to bridge you from where you are to age 95 to make sure that your portfolio is growing in a safe and sustainable way. So reach out to me. That's Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at FrancisFinancial.com. You can also go to our website, www.FrancisFinancial.com. And when you're there, make sure that you pick up that resource guide. It's a free resource for women going through divorce. It's called Unveiling the Unspoken Truth. And we talk to women about divorce and money and give you all the key tips you need to know about the things to do and not do during your divorce. Thank you for joining us for Financially Ever After, and we'll see you in two weeks.